This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ackman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jim Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program, Issues in Perspective. In our first perspective on the program today, I want to think with you about the tragedy at Penn State University. That the Penn State football coach, Joe Paterno, has been fired is almost unimaginable. I was born and raised in Pennsylvania, and in that state, he is probably the most important single individual. But his fall is a powerful reminder that sin permeates this fallen world and even the mighty fall. I want to press this point in this edition of Issues in Perspective. First of all, some important background. As I said, the situation at Penn State is difficult to believe. Joe Paterno and the Penn State football team are legendary, but the fact of child abuse by one of the coaches has brought down this legend. Here is a situation in summary. Jerry Sandusky, a former assistant coach, almost a decade ago had been observed forcing a young boy into a sexual act in Penn State's football locker room showers. At one point, incidentally, Sandusky was considered the likely successor to Paterno, but he retired. Sandusky has also established a nonprofit organization for boys, and he often brought those boys onto the Penn State campus. I believe he also maintained an office at the university, as I understand. The coach who observed Sandusky abusing the young man then informed Joe Paterno, who then informed the athletic director and the vice president. Nothing was done. And this is the point that cannot be ignored. Once this information was made available to Paterno, and once he observed that nothing was done, it was obligatory for him to push the issue. He did not. Hence, his complicity in the cover-up that persisted. It is probably not possible to know exactly how many boys Sandusky went on to abuse, but Saturday, the 4th of November, he was arrested and charged with 40 felony counts of sexual abuse involving young boys, stretching from 1994 to 2009. Subsequent to Sandusky's arrest, the university's athletic director, Tim Curley, and its senior vice president of business and finance, Gray Schultz, were also arrested. The jury's uh, 23-page report, that's a grand jury who investigated all of this, has revealed that both Joe Paterno and the university president, Graham Spanier, had knowledge of the 2002 firsthand report and did nothing. The board of Penn State has fired both men, Paterno and the president. The United States Department of Education has also announced that it would investigate Penn State's handling of the Sandusky case. Had the university acted on a 2002 incident, every child abused by Sandusky after that could have been spared. This is an ugly and reprehensible situation that could have been avoided. One can only think of David's words after the slaying of Saul and Jonathan on Mount Gilboa. How the mighty are fallen. Second, concerning this Penn State debacle, what should the church and other faith-based institutions do in light of this horrific scandal? It is imperative that such institutions implement decisive, 
and clear policies on how reports about sexual abuse are reported and handled. I'm going to make certain that this is the case in the institution that I lead. But I also believe that there's a very personal application that can be gleaned from such a scandal. Each one of us who loves the Lord must be certain that our lives reflect the highest personal integrity and righteousness. Each year, I review the following questions with my leadership team at Grace University. These 20 questions focus on personal integrity and accountability and part of a personal strategy for holiness. I believe the New Testament indeed commands us to have such a strategy. Otherwise, the commandments of the New Testament mean nothing. Here are those questions. How often did you have a quiet time last week? Two, what did your study in your devotional life teach you this past week? Number three, on a scale of one to ten, where would you rate your spiritual life? Four, besides scripture, what constructive material are you reading or studying? Five, how did you build up and encourage your wife or your husband this past week? Six, were there any times last week when the sun went down on your anger? Seven, On a scale of 1 to 10, if you're married, how would you rate your marriage? 8. What significant investment of time did you make with each of your children? 9. What one thing have you done recently that your family will remember five years from now? 10. When did you struggle with your thought life, and how did you respond to that struggle? Number 11. What did you do for exercise this past week? 12. What did you do for relaxation? 13. Is your weight up or down by how much? 14. Did your total indebtedness grow or shrink and why? 15. What percentage of your income did you give away outside your family? Number 16. Whom did you encourage? 17. With whom did you share your faith? 18. What were your emotional highs and lows? 19. What decisions or problems are weighing on you right now? And then finally, number 20, what are you praying for God to do in your life right now? These questions are adapted from the Organization Resource Handbook by Chip McGregor. I believe it is imperative that we take away from this tragedy at Penn State a very personal application. I believe it is imperative that we as Christians hold one another accountable. These questions are a way. They're not the only way, but a way to do that. I think it's important for each one of us to be in some kind of an accountability relationship. I think it's important for each one of us to have some kind of a partner in addition to our marriage partner, preferably someone of the same sex, a man with a man, a woman with a woman, where we can have the freedom to ask these kinds of questions and hold one another accountable. Because, dear people, a fall into sin doesn't happen normally. It doesn't happen quickly. It happens slowly over time. And it is important in accountability-type relationships where our accountability partner has the freedom to ask some of these penetrating questions are on the surface. Otherwise, it's just a superficial, shallow approach to our faith. A walk with God is the center of any important person's life who's a Christ follower. That walk with God is incredibly important, and it's cultivated. And it is matured, it's developed 
in relationship, not only with him, but with others. And there has to be some accountability. Had Jerry Sandusky, I have no idea where he is in his relationship with God, but had Jerry Sandusky had some kind of an accountability relationship where the kinds of things that he was struggling with would have come to the surface, perhaps all of the abuse that he engaged in would not have occurred. This is a horrible situation for Penn State, for the state of Pennsylvania, and for all those who love that football team. And Joe Paterno is now going to end his sterling career in disgrace. What a tragedy. And it all goes back to a personal decision by Jerry Sandusky and the struggle he had with that, that sexual sin and his willingness to get the kind of help that he needed. And an entire university has been brought down by the sin of one man over a long period of time. May we learn from this. And personally, may we apply some of these issues and these applications especially to our lives. In our second perspective on the program today, I want to shift completely and think with you about the Occupy Wall Street movement and radicalism in that movement. What are we to make of the Occupy Wall Street movement? What are its goals, its aspirations? Is it the left-wing equivalent of the Tea Party movement on the right? Is there any ideological coherence to this group? Certainly we can conclude this about the Tea Party movement. That movement is committed to American institutions. It is committed to working within the democratic system of our nation. There is excess and there is irrationality at times. But the Tea Party movement is part of a deep American tradition. When there's significant dissatisfaction with government, a group rises up and seeks political change within the institutions of the American system. Is that the case with the Occupy Wall Street movement? Several thoughts. Incidentally, as I am taping this, I just learned that in New York, the police have vacated Zuccotti Park where they have been engaged in this Occupy Wall Street movement now for quite a few weeks. Something similar happened in Oakland. We will see how these things begin to pan out. But I want to make several comments about the Occupy Wall Street movement. Number one, one would find it difficult to conclude that the Occupy Wall Street movement is civil, respectful of public property, and organized around the veneration of democratic institutions. The columnist Michael Gerson writes, The reports of sexual assault in Zuccotti Park, that's in New York, the penchant for public urination. Tea Party activists may hate politicians, but they venerate American political institutions. On its tie-dyed surface, the Occupy Wall Street movement seems little more than a confused collection of grievances. Some in New York protest the Church of Scientology, in Philadelphia, protesters attempted to occupy the cable provider Comcast. In Boston, they marched against the Israeli consulate chanting, Long live the Intifada. Protesters also targeted the Harvard Club. Is this the best of the Occupy Wall Street movement, or is it on the fringe? Number two, is there some semblance of ideological coherence within the Occupy Wall Street movement? Gerson observes, it's the Collectivist People's Council that seems to have two main inspirations in the Occupy Wall Street movement. Socialism, usually Marxist socialism, and anarchism. 
These two are sometimes in tension. They share, however, a belief that the capitalist system is a form of institutionalized violence and that normal democratic political methods dominated by moneyed interests are inadequate. Direct action is necessary to provoke a crisis that ignites the struggle that achieves the revolution. Many in the Occupy Wall Street movement are politically and ideologically either Marxian socialists or ideological anarchists, and they want to tear down the institutions of America. Not everyone in the Occupy Wall Street movement adheres to that, but some do, and increasingly it seems like many of the leaders do. Number three, consider this in Oakland. Oakland, California, protesters have been playing at the Paris Commune. Something goes back to the 1870s in Paris. Constructing barricades, setting fires, throwing concrete blocks and explosives, declaring a general strike to stop the flow of capital at the port in Oakland. Here, Occupy Wall Street movement seems to be taking its cues from Solinsky's Rules for Radicals and that terrible motion picture, A Clockwork Orange, back in the 60s and 70s. Number four. There are those within the Occupy Wall Street movement that follow the leftist tradition of liberal reform by means of the democratic process and nonviolent protest. But others within the left seek to undermine and foster the ultimate collapse and crisis of what they contend are fundamentally illegitimate social and economic systems. This latter group, this more radical group, seems unquestionably to be in the ascendant within the Occupy Wall Street movement. It is the leftist movement with a militant wing. Finally, these penetrating questions are the bottom line for the Occupy Wall Street movement and for the American people to consider. Will Americans looking for jobs turn to hope, to vandalization of small businesses, to the promise of a general strike? Will citizens disappointed by a dysfunctional government be impressed by the endless arguments of anarchist collectives? Will people disgusted by partisanship and rhetorical rock-throwing be attracted to actual rock-throwing in the Occupy Wall Street movement? In considering and in evaluating the Occupy Wall Street movement, Americans will need to process whether this movement represents the vision for America's future. I sincerely trust that as the American people evaluate and process the Occupy Wall Street movement, they will see it for what it is, a movement that is no longer credible and no longer legitimate. It's being hijacked by a radical fringe. I believe that the American people will ultimately reject the radicalism of the Occupy Wall Street movement. And the Democratic Party, in my judgment, will gain no credibility if it embraces this movement. It seems to be radicalized. It seems now to be in the process of being hijacked by extreme radicals on the left. And the government of New York City and the government of Oakland, California, in one sense, have seen it that way and have, in effect, broken up these uh, movements in those two key cities. The same thing is happening in other cities of the world, especially in London, unbelievably and ridiculously at St. Paul's Cathedral, one of the glorious aspects 
of the city of London, one of the most magnificent cathedrals in the whole world, is being hijacked by a bunch of radicals. Dear people, that is not how you affect social change. And I hope the American people and even people in London will see it for what it is, a radical fringe that does not have order civilization at the heart of their interest. They're anarchists, or at least some of the leaders, not all of them, but some of the leaders are. That is not in the best interest of civilization, certainly not of America. In our third and final perspective on the program today, I want to think with you about the core issue in the health care law that was passed in the summer of 2010. The Supreme Court of the United States has just agreed a couple of days ago to hear a case challenging the constitutionality of the health care law passed in the summer of 2010. I believe that the core issue with which the court will need to deal is the limits of government power to compel its citizens to purchase health insurance. Basic questions are at stake here. If the United States government can force its citizens to purchase health insurance, what else can the United States government force its citizens to do? Why can't government compel its citizens to do? What can it do? That's the central question. What can government compel, force, insist upon its citizens doing? In other words, has Congress overstepped its constitutional authority in enacting this part of the health care law? And it raises greater philosophical questions. What are the limits of government anyway? These questions and others are some of the most important stemming from President Obama's health care legislation. Fundamental issues about the nature of this republic are at stake. What exactly do we mean by limited government? What is the nature of the power the national government has over its citizens? Are there limits to that power? And what exactly is the nature of those limits? Adam Liptak, who writes for the New York Times, reports that even judges in lower courts who ultimately voted to uphold the law have honed in on the question of the limits of government power. For example, Judge Lawrence H. Silberman, who later voted to uphold the law, told a lawyer at an argument in September before the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, this is what he asked, what limiting principle do you articulate in defending this law? If Congress, he went on, may require people to purchase health insurance, what else can it force its citizens to buy? Where do you draw the line? Would it be unconstitutional, he asked, to require people to buy broccoli? He asked, could people making more than $500,000 a year be required to buy cars from General Motors to keep it in business? Judge Brett Kavanaugh asked, how about mandatory retirement accounts replacing Social Security? The most familiar justification for this requirement in the health care law is the Constitution's Interstate Commerce Clause. If that is so, to use this part of the law, it needs to be economic in nature, be concerned with true interstate commerce issues, and must address national problems. I'm not certain these matters are settled. This is what will come before the Supreme Court in, I believe, March is when they're going to hear the arguments, and then by next June, at the latest, they will make their decision. 
and incidentally, right in the heart of the national presidential campaign. In another opinion that dealt with the expansion of federal power, former Chief Justice William Rehnquist wrote this, It is difficult to perceive any limitations on federal power. If we are to accept the government's arguments, we are hard-pressed to posit any activity by an individual that Congress is without power to regulate. When a divided three-judge panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals to the 11th Circuit, based in Atlanta, struck down in August the mandate that individuals purchase and maintain health insurance from private companies, that court argued, quote, the government's position amounts to an argument that the mere fact of an individual's existence substantially affects interstate commerce, and therefore Congress may regulate them at every point of their life. Now let's drill down and get to the bottom line. In short, the primary constitutional issue at stake in this health care law is the power of the United States government, the federal government, the national government. What are the limits of that power? Is the interpretation of the Interstate Commerce Clause so broad that it covers this mandate, requiring citizens to buy health insurance? Is our understanding of limited government so central to the Democratic Republic of the United States being reinterpreted? If Congress can regulate the dimension of its citizens' private lives, what else can it regulate? Dear people, these are the most significant questions right now. And these are the questions that the United States Supreme Court will hear and will decide upon sometime next summer. They are not tangential issues to the law. They are at the very heart of what President Obama is trying to do. And at the very heart is the nature and dimensions and understanding of limited government so central to this republic. They must be answered. They will be a part of the debate. But may I make a broad statement, perhaps even somewhat of an incendiary statement, a provocative statement? The future and destiny of our republic are at stake on this issue. If the United States government can require its citizens to buy health insurance, what other things can the government require us to do? What are the limits? How do we think about those limits? How do we articulate those limits? And what do we then do based on that articulation? I'm hoping, indeed I'm praying, that the United States Supreme Court will see this as the primary issue that's coming to them from these states. There are state's attorneys generals who are filing this suit, and that's what the court is going to decide. They are going to have to interpret the health care legislation, not on the basis of health care. It's either need or not need, how it will be implemented, how it will be paid for. That's not the issue. The issue with which the court is dealing is what are the limits of the national government's power over its individual citizens' lives. And mandating that every citizen purchase health insurance is the core of that limited government issue. The Supreme Court's going to have to decide that. Next summer, we will know how the Constitution, from the Supreme Court's interpretation, how the Constitution applies to this. This is the core issue of the health care legislation. And we will find out next summer 
how the court rules. You've been listening to Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective is a radio production of Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska. If you have any questions or comments, or you would like a written summary of today's program, write to Issues in Perspective, 1311 South 9th Street, Omaha, Nebraska, 68108. You can also view a transcript and listen online at issuesinperspective.com. Join us next week for Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman. Issues in Perspective is a listener-supported program and ministry of Grace University. You can listen to this program as well as past programs on the web. Just log on to issuesinperspective.com and click on the Listen To button. You can also find the link to Dr. Ekman's website by logging on to this radio station's website and click on the Issues in Perspective banner ad. Issues in Perspective depends on listeners like you in order to broadcast on this station and other Christian radio stations across the country. Please send your tax-deductible donation to Issues in Perspective, P.O. Box 3251, Omaha, Nebraska, 68103. Your generous donation will help spread the Word of God and how it relates to culturally engaged Christians in today's world.